Now, today's sermon is about prayer. It's a bit of a theme running through our service so far. And we could talk for a very, very long time about prayer. I was thinking uh, a little bit about prayer uh, very recently with the World Cup being on and all that. And I was considering how prayer uh, is significant, not just for people of faith in whatever they choose to put their faith in, but just for the everyday person who wouldn't necessarily describe to have faith in anything, and yet at the same time when it comes to a penalty shootout, are there on their knees, crying out to whomever in order for that goal to be scored. Meanwhile, over in France, apparently there is another group of people who are on their knees in a very secular country, also praying that it might just come off the side of that striker's foot. Prayer is a bit strange. We have this kind of understanding of prayer to some extent, and certainly if you grow up in the church, you'll have all sorts of ideas that are packed into this idea of prayer. And yet at these points of desperation, right, when we feel like we don't have anything else to offer, the classic movie scene where the car is teetering off the edge of the cliff, something within every person, right, cries out for something beyond themselves, right? It's like, oh my goodness, I just realized that I'm human. I just realized that I don't have full control. And so there's this visceral kind of gut kind of cry and maybe it comes out in words or in squeals or something that says, I need something beyond myself. And it's interesting, right? Because this concept of prayer can both intimidate us Right? Because it's like, I know that prayer has power, and so I, I, I'm a bit intimidated by the concept. I want to get the right words. I want to do prayer correctly. Right? Uh, and at the same time, it can intrigue us. I'm sure we'd be familiar with certain contexts where people might go, how can I leverage prayer, for good or for bad? How can I leverage prayer? There's power here. There's something that kind of humanity screams out and cries out in at the weakest point. How can I leverage this to my advantage? And so some people can be a little bit scared, intimidated, and some people are intrigued. And yet what we see in this today's passage, in, as Jesus kind of reflects upon prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, is some really just like awesome clarity around um, what prayer is and how to go about doing prayer. Right? I'm deliberately using this because, oh, doing prayer feels bad. feels kind of sick to say, right? Because prayer isn't just something we do, right? Prayer is, is a posture. Prayer is something that we can set aside time for. But actually, what Jesus identifies here in the Sermon on the Mount is that prayer and its expression is primarily about the state of our heart. And all the way through this series as we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount series, this is what Jesus keeps coming back to. There's such a temptation to take Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which feels like a set of teachings and instructions, and apply them legally to the way that we go about doing our business, right? Giving expression to our faith. It's so tempting to do that. We look at the Beatitudes and we say, oh, poor in spirit. I just need to be poorer in spirit. And like, Jesus is like, no, 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 no. What I'm saying is those who feel that way are included, right? This is about aspiring to that. This is about recognizing just how wide and deep the kingdom of God is and what it looks like to participate in this well. And that's 
No exception when it comes to today's passage, which, um, again, may be a really familiar passage to many of us who have grown up in the church. And so uh, last week, um, David spoke uh, a bit about uh, what it looks like to give to the needy, and what it looks like to perform acts of righteousness with this right heart. Today, we're going to look at prayer with this right heart. And then uh, next week, Gordon is going to be sharing on fasting. Again, not just about do the fast, but with the right heart. And so with that in mind, I'm going to work our way through Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to point out a few things along the way that sometimes we can get a little twisted, get a little confused by, uh, and, um, and it's going to be lots of fun because Jesus has so much to teach in this passage. I love Jesus is just the best teacher ever. Okay, here we go. So Matthew 6, 5 to 6. We're just going to focus on this little section first. <clears throat> Pardon me. So this is following on from the giving to the needy, right? So that's why it starts with and. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now again, it's going to stop there. You take this passage and immediately there's a danger that you look at some of these passages and you be like, oh, my, I'm doing prayer wrong, right? Where is my prayer closet? I forgot to install a prayer closet in my house that I could go into and pray in secret. What did we just do in church like 15 minutes ago? What did our pastor facilitate that prayer? Oh, heretic. You know, like, like we start to kind of do this and be like, what is Jesus going on about here? Well, let's just unpack a little bit about what is going on. First, I want to talk about this idea of hypocrite, right? Because there are some easy mistakes that we can have with our kind of Western mindset, what we attribute to these particular words. Um, that, that probably just, just wasn't there in the original kind of context. So this word hypocrite, uh, when you think of the word hypocrite, right, something probably initially comes to mind. And that is somebody who says they're going to do one thing and then does something else, right? That's a hypocrite, right? That's what we understand hypocrite to be. Now, that's our interpretation of that word hypocrite, but that's actually not what a hypocrite meant in the first century when Jesus was teaching. The word hypocrite, uh, hypocritas, um, was an actor. The word in the Greek meant an actor. And when we're talking about an actor, we're talking about a genuine theater performer, right? So when you actually went to the theater, you would look at hypocritas, right? So you would see these actors, right, who sometimes would wear, you know, like performance masks or they might have various kind of makeup on in order to assume a particular character, right? And so when Jesus critiques the hypocritas, right, he's actually not critiquing people who say that they're doing one thing and then do something else, right? Sometimes when we hear like the word Pharisee, we're like, those Pharisees. Who does Jesus always target about being hypocritas? The Pharisees. And so sometimes we assume that means that they're saying that they're doing one thing and not doing it. You hypocrites, right? That, you need to understand, the Pharisees were not hypocrites in that way. They were deeply pious. Like if they said that they were going to do something, they would deliver. Their entire faith was dependent 
upon delivering to the minutiae of the law that they had specified. So the hypocrites, right, were not these Pharisees who were like saying that they're following uh, Yahweh and then not following him, right? That's our Western projection. What Jesus was challenging in these hypocrites, right, was simply putting their piety on display for everyone to see. They were being actors. They had turned their piety and their their, their righteousness into this performance, into this show. And that is what Jesus was critiquing. They had become actors. Not people who said they were going to do one thing and didn't do it. They had simply become actors and putting their prayer, in this case, out there for the world to see in the worst possible way. Out there for the world to see, not for God's glory, but for their own. And this makes a whole lot more sense when we start to kind of read this through. You know, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, those who are like actors putting on a show, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. If you were the hypocrite in the Western sense, you wouldn't really want to be seen, would you? (laughs) Because you'd be like critiqued, right? So these are just actors. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And this is the same terminology that was picked up last week as well. This idea, if you are going to pray and just put yourself on display so others can give you the glory, then whatever glory you receive in that moment, that is it, right? That's it. You might receive some glory. There might be some people who are like, oh, that person's really religious. Oh, they've got such deep faith. And if you hear that and you feel a sense of accomplishment, fine. That is your reward in full. But there's not going to be anything else right, that that prayer is going to generate. And so Jesus continues, but when you pray, go into your room, we'll unpack that in a second, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Right? So again, Jesus is first and foremost, when it comes to prayer, critiquing the motivation, not the practice. Right? He's critiquing the motivation. If you are praying to receive glory, then you've got it wrong. Whatever kind of glory you receive, that is the extent of your reward. And then he pushes further and he talks about instead of that acting on display, go into your room, right? And do this in this kind of quiet, secret place. And I've heard people use this uh, passage to critique public prayer, right? And they've gone, like Jesus said, you're not to be praying publicly. You have to go into your room and you have to pray there because that is the secret place and that's where Jesus, or God meets you and, and that's where you respond in. And, and contextually, couldn't be more wrong, right? Because first and foremost, in the first century, they did not have little prayer rooms that they went into, Okay. Let me show you what a prayer room looks like in the first century. Right here. This is a prayer room. Okay? This is a prayer room. Okay. So the Jewish reader, of course, Jesus was Jewish and he was speaking to Jewish people. They would have quickly and immediately understood that when Jesus referred to the talit in this passage or or, or the room, it was a reference to the prayer shawl, okay? So when the prayer shawl, or the talit as it's known as, was wrapped over the head, it made this kind of tent, this covering, right, where you could escape the, 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 the temptations around you, the distractions around you, and you would lift it over your head and over your arms, closing the door over your face. That was your prayer closet, 
okay? And, and Jewish men would always have a prayer shawl on. It was part of the tradition. This would have been very, very familiar and is still a familiar practice to this day if you go to Jerusalem. The prayer closet was always available, right? You didn't have to go somewhere and get into your little room. You literally just did this. Okay. Now let me ask you, does this look like it's in public? It's pretty obvious when someone's in their prayer room, isn't it? Right? Right. So this isn't like a hidden away prayer. Okay. Everyone was fully aware that you were praying, right? So this wasn't a kind of take your prayer elsewhere so no one sees you. In fact, that would counter the early parts of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is very explicit about the fact that you ought to have your righteousness be seen by others so that they would glorify your Father in heaven, right? So as an expression of faith, it isn't about hiding away and just doing our little spiritual practices over here in our little prayer room. This was both public but also very humbling, Okay. And it wasn't about performance, right? Because you literally didn't kind of disclose your identity in that moment. Oh, so you, you, you hid your identity in that moment, okay? And so when Jesus talks about going to your prayer room, this is what he was referring to. Instead of being out on the street corner, parading my prayer, I'm just going to create this space for me and God. I don't have to hide, but I'm just creating a space to align myself with God. My prayer can still be public, it can still be seen, people know what I'm doing, but the motivation is not to be an actor seen by others, identified by others, because prayer isn't about what's happening out there, it's actually about what's happening in here. And so Jesus challenges the Pharisees, and of course, us today as as followers of Jesus, that when we consider our prayers, we don't have to put on a show, but rather we just need to create these spaces for intimacy with God. It doesn't need to be hidden away, but nevertheless are about adding our weight, our spiritual say-so, into the spiritual war and aligning our heart with God. And so Jesus makes it clear, prayer can be public, but it's not as performance. So we can keep doing our pastoral prayer. <laughs> it's okay. I'm grateful to be able to say that I think of this church, I, I can't even recall a time where someone's come up here and been like, oh yeah, look how good I am at praying. Like, like, that's not really the deal. And we've got other kind of cultural and social dynamics that maybe prevent that in our day, right? You know, a bit of tall poppy syndrome and the like. But nevertheless, right, this is an important lesson. It's an important lesson for us when it comes to prayer. So then Jesus moves on to a different example of prayer. He says in verse 7, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, while we don't uh, historically know exactly which pagan uh, prayers were being referred to, we do know that within uh, the Roman system, which of course at the time of the day um, were considered to be the pagans, um, that their various deities that they would pray to, there was an understanding that you had to use very perfect language in order for that God to understand your request. And they had these very long prayers that they would pray, and if they made a mistake in the delivery of that prayer, they would have to start from the beginning again. So whether they were babbling because there was this kind of sense of repetition or whether it's babbling because they just kept getting it wrong, nevertheless, Jesus critiques the pagan practice of the day and says, I think you've got your prayer 
motivation and your prayer kind of practice wrong because your Father in Heaven actually already knows what you're going to be praying. This isn't about trying to unlock the key to God by delivering the prayer in a particular way. You don't have to crack the code so you can communicate with the gods, right? Your Father already knows. And so Jesus is like, it's not about your fancy words. It's not about creating and cultivating this strong argument like you have to convince God that your prayer is valid. God already knows what you need. It could be summarized a bit like this. Jesus is like, hey, keep it simple and keep it sincere. When it comes to prayer, we have these ideas about what prayer might look like, and sometimes we're scared and sometimes we're curious, but at the same time, there's a sense of going, Jesus is like, just keep it simple. Keep it sincere. Create that space for you and God. You don't have to come up with the right words. I've sat with people in many, many kind of prayer groups and small groups over the years, um, and, and I always find that prayer to be that interesting space where some don't mind praying out loud and others are like, I just don't want to do that, and they've got various reasons for that. But, but chatting to people, like one of the reasons is like, I just don't know if I'll say the right thing. It's like, God knows the memories of your heart, just, you know, just keep it simple. Um, There's a beautiful moment, uh, youth group a couple of weeks ago, we were uh, in a small group just wrapping up in prayer, and um, just this group of uh, kind of senior high guys. And I said to one of the guys, I'm like, hey, can you close in prayer for us? Um, after we'd had this conversation about Jonah. And, um, and uh, you know, you kind of got that initial kind of freak out look. And then you're like, yep, cool, cool, cool. And, uh, and then he just prayed. And he just prayed one line. It's a beautiful one line. And we're sitting there in silence. And, you know, there's that moment sometimes in group prayer where you're like, is anyone else going to say anything? Who's in charge here? And there's a sense of kind of like, just like, actually, you know what? That was enough. That kind of summed up what we were saying. It was basically, hey, whatever we've learned, let's, let's apply it. I'm like, great prayer. Solid prayer, right? And so it's not about fancy words. It's not about saying things over and over again. Just keep it simple. Keep it sincere. And so Jesus, after pulling all these kind of illustrations together around the, the hypocritas and then to the, to the pagans, he pulls this all together. We haven't even got to the Lord's Prayer, but I tell you, this is the icing on the cake when it comes to this particular lesson. And so we're going to go through it, and I'm not going to break it down into line by line. There's plenty of sermons that have done that. I just want to talk about what Jesus is doing here. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, this, uh, which we classically call the Lord's Prayer, has its parallel in Luke chapter 11, where the disciples ask their rabbi Jesus, Rabbi, Jesus, teach us how to pray, just as John the Baptist taught his disciples, right? Very common, very common question. You are my rabbi, you are my teacher. I want to know how you pray so that I can imitate you. Because what does a disciple do? They imitate their rabbi, right? So, so this is the context of the Luke 11, and in Mark's, sorry, Matthew's gospel, they've integrated it into the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we hear these words, and, and again, we kind of obviously give us this title, the Lord's Prayer, and that's totally fine. But sometimes we assume that Jesus just kind of like, just in that moment, just kind of came up with some words. It's just like, oh, wow, Jesus, you are articulate. And he well and truly could have. I give Jesus as much credit as I can at any point in time. Clearly, the fact that it is being given here means that these words are true and authoritative. 
the thing we often miss about this particular prayer is that it's actually based on an existing and very common prayer of the time called the Amada. Okay? So it's actually based on an existing prayer of the time called the Amada, which was traditionally said every day at midday. It was a standing prayer, and people would get in groups of 10 and say this prayer or something very similar to it. Okay? Now, if you look up online the Amida prayer, which you're more than welcome to do, you'll see that this Amida prayer is still in use, and it has evolved over time. And when I say evolved, what I mean is it has got bigger and longer, um, especially around about AD 80, when the rabbinic kind of movement um, and the Talmud and, and the, the Midrash kind of process took place. There was a lot of work done on the Amida. But... If you look back at the earliest archaeological digs and references that actually preceded Jesus by around about 50 years, we actually have some lines within this prayer that may seem familiar. Now, this prayer was always given as a simple prayer that was designed to cover the basics. It was a common prayer of the day especially if you were in Jerusalem because at midday would happen, you'd find a group of 10, you'd say the Amidah prayer. And then as you went to leave, there would be a group of nine people, and they're like, we need one more. So then you get stuck in that group, say the Amidah prayer. And eventually you would work your way out of this space, right? So you might say the Amidah prayer three, four times if you're around Jerusalem, okay, as you left. And this is what we have in terms of a portion of it from the first century. Originally in Hebrew, which you don't have to read, but that's what I put in the bottom right there. Our Father, the one who dwells in heaven, may your name be holy. May your kingdom come as we do your will here on earth as it is done in heaven. Give us today the bread of today and deliver us from the evil one. Cursed be he. Now, there's a piece missing. We're going to come back to that later. But isn't it fascinating, right, that this common prayer of the day that the disciples would have well have known, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. He's essentially saying, you know how to pray. You already know how to pray. This isn't about some fancy words. This isn't about unlocking the code. You know how to pray. Just pray the prayer that you know how to pray. You know the prayer that we always pray? Just pray that prayer, you're okay. Right? There is one exception, which I'm going to highlight later. Okay? But this is what Jesus is saying. You already know how to pray. Just keep doing that. There's not a code to unlock. There's not like these ascendant words of the pagans. These ones that you use daily, keep on using because it isn't about showing yourself off as an actor. It is about making a convincing um, case or unlocking a special code. Keep it simple. Keep it sincere, right? You already know how to pray. Now, I recognize that the context of this was within a Jewish society where Everyday prayer was really, really common. They had so many prayers. And here we are in you know, 21st century Australia where maybe our prayers and our language is not so common. So I get that. But the principle behind this is still excellent. Jesus is like, you don't have to do anything fancy. Just bring what you have with the right heart. Right? Now, again, over all these teachings, I'd hope that, that we're a church where our problem isn't that we're putting on a show with our prayers um, and broadcasting our kind of piety for our own glory. I don't think that's such an issue. But if it is for you and you, you know that in your heart, then, then take that on board, right? Um, 
there might be people here in our congregation who have overcompensated from that public prayer and they've read those words of Jesus and be like, I, I can only pray in secret and, and felt like that was wrong to do anything else and, and you just need to be reminded that, hey, hey, prayer closet was, was public as well. Humble, but public. And some people here might feel like, I pray, but I just don't have the right words. All right? So when Jesus says you already know how to pray, He's first and foremost talking about the state of our hearts. And so if you're like, I don't have any prayers, there are a lot of good prayers. I mean, you can pray this prayer. <laughs> pray this prayer. And like, if you're starting out and you're like, I actually don't know what prayers to pray, just, just pray this prayer. But, but if there's something that's on your heart, you're just like, Jesus, I need this. And that's the prayer, you pray. that's beautiful. The everyday, accessible, grounded, raw prayer is a beautiful prayer. And God will hear it. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be repetitive. Pray, but don't overthink it, is what Jesus is getting on about. Just pray, but don't overthink it. Now, I do want to highlight one particular addition that Jesus makes in his prayer that is very distinct compared to any other historical iteration of the Amida, right? So the Amida prayer, like I said, has evolved over time. Right? In fact, even it has included uh, now in very modern versions and probably included from around about 120 uh, uh, AD, uh, this inclusion of, Lord, would you forgive us, which wasn't included in the original. But no version outside of Jesus' version of the Amida includes the prayer for us to forgive others. Right? This is a really critical distinction that Jesus makes. He takes the common day prayer that would have been really familiar and he adds this key line here in verse 12, which again wasn't in that first century version, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So again, later versions of the Amidah that are still used within Jewish tradition, they give you the first half of that, verse 12. Forgive us our debts. Yeah? So they'll include that. But this idea that we have a responsibility to forgive others right, would be a completely foreign concept in first century Judaism. right? Because in the first century, the understanding was always that God is the one who forgives. I want my brother to be forgiven. I want to be forgiven, but I am not the one who does the forgiving. God is the one who does the forgiving. I was reflecting upon um, how this is reflected through the text in Psalm uh, 51, where David uh, has uh, slept with Bathsheba and he's murdered Uriah. Like, this is bad stuff. And in the beginning of the psalm of, of kind of uh, lament, this psalm of um, heartbreak and, and, and confession, he says, uh, you, Lord, you alone against I have sinned. And I remember one of my previous mentors saying, like, what a load of rubbish. Like, you against you alone, Lord, I have sinned? You're, you're, you're a homewrecker, right? That's, that's what my, my it's like, you're a homewrecker. What about against Bathsheba? What against, against Uriah? But you, you alone, Lord, I have sinned. This is reflective of the understanding of the day. Forgiveness, right, was between God and people, not between each other. Now, that would evolve, again, within the next couple of hundred years within um, Judaism, but at the time was not present. In fact, the idea that we had the authority to forgive others was controversial. If you read through your text in Jesus' ministry, people are like, hey, you don't have the authority to forgive sins. What? Yeah? It was an issue. 
And so this was something that Jesus landed in this common prayer that is deeply profound and continues to speak to followers of him today. This Jesus insistence that we are invited into the forgiveness process, that the way that we treat each other matters. And this is the thread that runs all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. So we should not be surprised that Jesus has landed this in here, something deeply provocative, profound, and that would ultimately transform the direction of his movement, right, for millennia to come. Because forgiveness also changes our hearts. And again, I'm not going to turn this into a sermon on forgiveness. We've got plenty of sermons on forgiveness. But you know that if you're harboring unforgiveness, you know what that does to your heart, right? I I know what it does to my heart. And so Jesus is like, in your everyday prayer, keep it simple, keep keep it sincere, but make sure you don't forget that you have a responsibility to forgive others too. This prayer isn't just between you and God. This is actually about changing the posture of your heart so that you are positioned to forgive others. And this is why it makes complete sense that he doubles down in the next couple of verses. The distinction that he makes within the Armada prayer, right? That is the only thing he highlights in the next two verses, that distinction. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So in this prayer where he could have highlighted and give commentary to any of those lines, and we do in lots of sermons, the one piece of commentary he gives in his Ambedak prayer is with this distinctive piece that he places within that common prayer around forgiving others. And he doubles down and he says, this is a big deal. Forgiving others is a really big deal. And I'm not going to kind of theologically unpack this because you could be like, that's like, what? If I don't forgive, then God doesn't forgive. What does that mean about grace? Blah, blah, blah. We can have those conversations another time. The important thing here in this particular teaching is Jesus is highlighting and saying, this is really important. If you and your posture of prayer is simple and sincere and that's all good, but if you miss out on that forgiveness piece where you're not only asking for forgiveness for your sins, but actually positioning your heart in order to forgive others, then you are missing something about the heart of prayer. You can pray and pray and pray, but if, you're, if you are not reconciled with your brother or sister, then that's going to be a barrier in your faith. And I feel like that's like a deep challenge for me and I hope it's a deep challenge for you and for people who, like, you know that prayer is like something that is profound in your life and and it works for you in terms of drawing your heart towards God. That's a beautiful thing. But if that prayer does not regularly include who do I need to forgive, then Jesus says you're missing. You're missing the heart. And so Jesus insists that forgiveness of others, this revolutionary concept, which is still so divisive, is essential. He raises the stakes. It's confronting. At face value, it feels even theologically controversial. But Jesus insists that when we pray, this must be on our mind. So to wrap it all up, I don't know where you're at with the practice of prayer. We're all going to be in different places, depending upon our histories and our formation, and that's totally fine. What I love is that this particular teaching of Jesus, it just kind of just hits some really solid, solid runs, right? It's like, hey, prayer is not about a performance. Prayer is not about unlocking the code with all your words. You know how to pray. Keep it simple. Keep it sincere. But also, don't forget 
forgiveness. <laughs> because this is the thing that is going to transform your heart and your relationship to others. And your relationship with others, fostering the health of that, is core to the kingdom. Because the kingdom is reflected in loving service toward others. Right? So prayer isn't a performance. Keep it simple, keep it sincere, and keep forgiving. That's what the Lord's Prayer is about. So I'm going to pray in just a moment. I'm going to go in my little prayer closet with my microphone. Okay? And I encourage you to take this moment, right, to ask the question, like, where's my prayer life at? Not as a tick box of, like, I've got to do this to get God on my side. It's clearly not what this is about. Right? But like, is there anything I need to refine? Is there a misconception I need to drop? What does Jesus have to teach us? So let me pray. God, I want to thank you that you know this prayer before I even pray it. You know every uh, prayer on our hearts. And so God, thank you that you lead us just as you led your disciples in an awareness of what prayer looks like. Not to get on your good side, but because we know that prayer and communing with you and conversation with you, God, truly does give us life. And so for those of us who may at times feel scared to pray, may we be reminded that simple prayer, raw, honest prayer, brings you to light. God, if there's some kind of pride that we need to challenge in ourselves and how we go about demonstrating our faith, I just I pray that you would challenge us appropriately in that. May all that we do be for your glory. That's what faith in you is, is about. It's not for our glory. We repent of those times when it's been about our glory or the church's glory. It's, it's all about your glory. And yet how good it is, Lord, to know that across our town and across the nation, Lord, we've got people who can go into their prayer closet each and every day and whatever kind of field that they're in and just align their hearts with yours once again. And so, God, we do pray that you would be glorified, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done, that you would provide us with what we need each day, that we would be forgiven for our sins and that we would be proactive in our forgiveness toward others. You are the one who delivers us from evil and it's your kingdom and your glory that we strive for. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite uh, Katie and the team to come up. It's going to close with a song today. I feel like I need to be um, wearing a Nike T-shirt that says, Just do it.
And so God, as we head into this week, we keep it simple, keep it sincere. God, but would we commune with you through prayer? Um, Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to gather today. Thank you for the work that you do in our hearts. Thank you for the revelation that continues to emerge through your word. God, we are thankful that we can be in relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. If you'd like prayer or a conversation, feel free to find me or one of the elders. We would love to pray with you. Please do stick around for some morning tea in the hall. Our 5 p.m. service is on tonight. Megan is going to, Megan is going to be sharing uh, from Psalm 141, 131, 131 tonight as we talk about finding rest. And so we hope you can join us for that as well. Grace and peace be with you. Don't forget to collect your kids. That as well.